Hi, everyone, and a warm welcome to tomorrow's Tech Today, bringing you the latest in technology, talent, transformational change, and, of course, tech as a force for good. I'm your host, Professor Sally Eves, and today we're focusing in on probably the most dynamic sector of our times, cybersecurity, and within it, a threat that's possibly been mischaracterized as relatively well-managed, that of DDoS. So why should this be still very much on your security radar today? Join us now for all the latest news and a journey right across the intelligent automation protection spectrum. To do so, you better now to be joined by A10, who have recently researched some 15.4 million DDoS attacks and are a global leader in this space. So let's get started. And to do so, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Nicholson, Senior Director of Product Marketing at A10. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sally. Good to be here. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. And I always like to kind of start the show really with a kind of getting to know you question for the audience. So I kind of phrased it like the person behind the tech. So Paul, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your journey to Senior Director of Product Marketing at A10 and maybe like a moment that's really stood out to you along the way. Because again, I think it's lovely to share with the audience and can inspire many people. Okay, good question. Um, you know, so I started off back in IT back in the day, working in the UK, in the UK for various different uh, companies, and uh, then made my way over to the US and uh, worked in uh, the channel and installing systems at, at multiple different companies, and then uh, ended up at A10 talking about the technology itself and uh, trying to give advice on how uh, people can improve their security and improve their application delivery infrastructures as well. So being a practitioner and now talking about the technology a lot more, which is kind of interesting to see how everything is developing in tech, because obviously there's a lot of new technologies coming along, such as AI and you know even the evolution of the attacks is something which is quite interesting to watch, even if we do have to guard against it. Absolutely. I think it's like the three S's really, isn't it, in terms of cybersecurity at the moment, just the sheer, the scope, the scale, the sophistication of these types of threats and new vectors of change evolving all the time. I think it's that evolution and you know bad actors coming together, the geopolitical landscape. And again, even if threats that were once disappeared coming back, things like Emotech, for example, as well. So I think in the round, all those things together, absolutely such a dynamic space to, to be in. One of the things I love about what you do at A10 is the fact that you're bringing together, for example, the network protection, but also cyber intelligence alongside that as well. And I was looking into some of your research and there's a staggering number that that sprung to mind in terms of what you're looking at. And it was saying that you're tracking, it was over 15 million, I think it was 15.4 million DDoS attacks in particular, the weapons around that. That number is really staggering. I think it brings to the fore just how significant a threat this is. And one of the areas I wanted to focus on today was drilling into that in particular, because you know, we, we know the, the, the sheer scope and range of threats, but this one massively stood out from your research, particularly around the nature of evolution too. So perhaps we could take that as our starting point today. And a lot of language in, in, in IT, isn't it, around denial of service, for example, but let's unpack what that really means for all our audience and drill into some of those details. Like you say, the attention-grabbing number yes. in there is the 15.4 million, which uh, in the last report is around 15 million, so it's increased by four, around 400,000. When we look at that number, we actually class, classify these as potential weapons. Yes. So these are things which can be in DDoS uh, attacks, but they might be just regular systems out there which are servicing users. When we break down that number, around 15 million of those are UDP services. So these are connectionless uh, services which are available on the internet, which serve our everyday needs, such as you know DNS for name resolution when we go to websites, or um, maybe it's uh, network time protocol servers, etc. So very common things. 
the other part of that, uh, the other 400,000 of that 15.4 million is uh, botnet agents. When we look at this number, this number actually goes up and down. We've had it as high as 800,000 in previous reports, depending on the level of infection uh, at the time and the proliferation of uh, certain attacks and uh, malware, which we see out there. So, yeah, very different types of things. But, yeah, with the 15 uh, million number, that's the one which uh, the UDP services, that's typically the one which is involved in the biggest types of attacks out there. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's drill into that a little bit more about the nature of those attacks. So, hey, kind of why DDoS is so relevant. I think we've already given a really good kind of indicator of that already, but just how they've evolved as we head into you know more, more of 2023, but what the main levels of attack are and what is motivating attackers to, to really invest in this particular channel. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you could do some parallels to a uh, real world where, you know, you see sometimes there's jewelry stores which get mobbed by 100 people running and grabbing, doing a smash and grab. If you just had one person coming in, it'd be quite probably quite easy to deal with. But when you have a mass, it's a different scenario. So DDoS attacks is that same idea where basically people are trying to use systems to overwhelm other systems out there. So, you know, there, you know, when we look at the amplification attacks um, you know, with these UDP services I mentioned earlier, people send a very small packet requesting uh, a certain piece of information and they can generate payloads of 60 times, a couple of hundred times, even a thousand times in some of the research we've seen. And then they've spoofed their IP address, i.e. pretended they're someone else. So that traffic goes back to the intended target. So they can basically, with a very small request, create a lot of information to overwhelm another target and get away scot-free. So it's a very attractive item for attackers because it can wreak havoc, but with very little requirements from their end relatively. It's a great point. There were a number of great points, actually. One, that cost of entry, as you were saying there, the actual cost of entry to launch attack like this has reduced so much. We've seen that in other areas as well, also around malware in particular. So that's a great point as well. But also you've used that word overwhelm. And I think you're absolutely right. It's not just you know, in, in the DDoS example that that volume of, of threats coming to play, but it's also the, everything else that's surrounding this at the moment as well. You know, we've got kind of over, overwhelm in terms of sprawl sometimes, for example, in terms of, say, tool sprawl, um, even cloud and other areas like that as well, which I'm seeing a lot of organizations navigating right now, but also overwhelm in terms of some of the shortages we're seeing in cybersecurity as well. So we've got some resource drain there. And also around, you know, compression of budgets and kind of overwork around operations too. So lots of things there, kind of let alone the geopolitical and economics things as well. So absolutely, the more we can do to support this overwhelming kind of all its different forms, absolutely critical, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, like you say, the sprawl is actually probably part of the con- contribution yes. to some of these attacks going on. Because if you had like 100 virtual machines and 1,000 desktops, uh, et cetera, multiple different clouds, are you really monitoring those, uh, all those systems at the same level in the same way to make sure they're not actually being used or being infected by malware to be used as a botnet agent? So, yeah, there's a lot of um, more complexity today, I think, than there was like 10 years ago. Absolutely. It's kind of those three pillars, isn't it? It's navigating that complexity and to do that, improving things like integration and visibility, absolutely critical. Couldn't, couldn't agree more strongly. And kind of as part of this and kind of potentially taking advantage of where some of these weaknesses are at the moment, how have you seen DDoS attacks specifically evolve most recently? And kind of where do you think this is heading? You know, what are the biggest changes here that people should be looking out for right now? 
Yeah, it's interesting because the attackers have evolved, but also the defences have evolved. Um, I think we really had a watershed moment in 2016 with the Mirai uh, botnet, which was out there, which overtook a lot of um, you know cameras and uh, IoT devices. What was really interesting about that, uh, we obviously saw there was a massive increase in spend in terms of people putting DDoS defenses into their networks, which I think explains a little bit why we don't see as many high-profile attacks as we did before, because people are absorbing these attacks. And we see this from data, you know, from our customers and also in the public domain. Uh, for example, Microsoft's got a threat report they put out recently, and they're blocking around 1,900 attacks, DDoS attacks a day. But as they're successfully doing it, they don't normally report on it apart from in these informational reports. When we look at the landscape of what's changed, you know, when we look at Mirai, that was a multi-vector attack. It wasn't just one attack, like an amplification attack or a SIN flood. It was actually you know, seven or eight attacks in one. So it had SIN floods in there, had DNS elements, had uh, HTTP elements at layer seven. So it basically you know, was trying to find which vector would be successful. What was also interesting is the attackers there, They, um, I think they were trying to cover their tracks and they basically open sourced, like people do in the regular world, right? Open sourced the code for Mirai. And what you've, what we not, what we've seen, um, and many people have seen over the years, is that code keeps resurfacing in different attacks and evolves. Uh, like in, a year later, in 2017, there was an IoT Reaper agent or malware agent out there, and uh, that included you know common passwords and exploits for like D-Link devices and other vendors out there. But it had a lot of the same elements of Mirai in there. So the attackers have got more you know almost like cookbooks to be able to work with it yeah that's just on the attack side we're also seeing evolution where there's a lot more internal network attacks as well where you know software has been installed locally and they're attacking east west and also coming out of service provider networks so the service providers are actually trying to detect uh attacks originating uh rather than just incoming which was always the traditional way of doing it and then I think finally, the one other thing we're seeing is just the rise of your know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to be able to detect attacks and to get accuracy, because it's like finding a needle in the haystack. And with IT teams and especially security teams being overworked with 100 different tools, anything to automate across the stack, including the detection element, is something which is very critical for the teams so that they can free themselves up to work on other issues that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely, because I think you're absolutely right. And I was at an event, you know, in the last few days, but it was under kind of Chatham's House rules, so I can't say anything specific about it. But this sprawl element and this kind of overwhelm, very much a common thread at the moment. So the sport you were mentioning there in terms of levels of automation and AI to really support that kind of human-machine partnership and filter through some of that so we don't get to that situation where actually the really key active intelligence we need is being missed because it's not getting to the right role, the right person at the right time. So I couldn't agree more strongly. Absolutely key there. And another thing that struck me there when you're talking about the effect of some of these um, attacks as well is that some populations will be more vulnerable to these types of attacks than others. And I, I do a lot of work around inclusion. And I think there's a really kind of interesting correlation between populations that are less served from a connectivity point of view 
Equally, a lesser from things like sustainability, but also a security point of view as well. There's a really kind of interesting triangle between kind of the data around these particular areas. So if we think about this escalation in DDoS terms, I think there's a ripple effect here in, in what this could be having. But how are you seeing this affecting, for example, rural and underserved communities? So there's a brilliant um, event I did with ATN last year, very much looking at this and support you're doing for these particular populations. So I'd love to drill into that a little bit further as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, sometimes it comes down to resources, right? So, yeah, I, I even think back, I mean, even though it's not quite the same thing, the colonial pipeline story, right? Um, you know, an energy provider who gets attacked and they probably got one IT guy on the staff, right? Or person on staff. You know, you look at any of these rural service providers as well, they have to basically have the same level of protection a large service provider would have, but they might not have the resources. So, again, it comes down to being prepared, um, you know, and that's, yeah, like I've been saying since Mirai, there's I think there's a lot more organizations who are prepared uh, because they actually have systems in place and they've been upgrading their systems to reduce false positives and deal with these attacks. And then the automation behind it so that, you know, one person can do more with less. Um, I think that's really, you know, one of the big things. Because when you get out to, you know, some of these um you know, rural providers or the underserved communities, certain things, probably online banking or something, you can wait five hours or something like that. That's probably not an issue. But when we look at the future, I think there might be more dependency on certain services, which may or may not be there today, like telehealth and things of that nature. Um, so if you are in a very remote place and you have an assisted surgery or something like that, where you need real-time information, um, the criticality of being available all the time um, is obviously critical. So um, it depends on the application, if it's real time or not. But yeah, basically the systems have to be available. And as these communities get more served, they're going to become more dependent naturally over time and as technology evolves. So I, I think you know, right now there's a lot of build out. I think in the, in the future years, there's going to be a lot more dependency, uh, critical dependency than there is today. Now, excellent points. Excellent points there. You mentioned as well about size of organization and you're kind of explaining that in a lot of those populations it could just be one person multiple hats you know in terms yeah. of roles and it kind of brings to the fore you know security is an imperative for organizations of all sizes one thing i often find um is maybe underlooked or it is a lack of awareness here about how much resources are actually available to support some of which being kind of some of the research we're talking about here and the knowledge sharing around that but if you had a couple yeah. of pieces of advice for some of the smaller organizations right now about things you can do to support against this threat and obviously cybersecurity more broadly what would they be and why yeah that, that's a could be a wide question yeah, right could, so sorry um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think with any organization, they've got to look at their threat landscape and what, you know, what's most important to them. So they've got to assess what the biggest type of threats uh, are, you know, which will affect them. Um, some organization, you know, quite honestly, a DDoS attack might not be the biggest issue they're worried about because they don't maybe have a publicly advertised resource running on their network because it's running, say, in a cloud provider, et cetera, et cetera. On the, on the flip side, they, they also might want to look at their service providers to make sure their service providers have a level of protection to guarantee the connectivity services. So they might be more worried about the connectivity services versus the, um, the application servers, depending on what they provide. So uh, it, it just kind of depends on what the, you know, the biggest issue 
yeah, they have out there, I think. Absolutely. And kind of maybe bringing that to life, um, and if you can, from a customer perspective, maybe, maybe anonymized, um, but perhaps share an example of a customer you're working with at the moment that's navigating a detox stress or similar and kind of how you've worked there, that facilitation piece to, to support them. It'd be great to kind of see how that works to share that with the audience too. Yeah, I mean, we 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 have a lot of different types of customers, from like gaming to cloud providers to um, banks, education uh, institutions, and districts as well. We sometimes actually act like service providers for their districts as well because of just the way they've evolved. So the, the requirements are normally di- uh, different. So when we look at like the gaming industry, everything has to be real time. Everything's in line. You know, every millisecond matters. If the game doesn't work, people will go to a different game, right? Um, when we look at some of the service providers, um, we had a couple of service providers who came to us because they were originally trying to outrun the DDoS attack by just putting in more capacity, more DNS capacity, more web server capacity. But then they were hit by attacks and it did cause outages for their customer base. Um, so basically they put systems in place to basically deal with that, detect the threats, and basically it didn't even get into their network afterwards. Um, so, you know, when we look at the, you know, the, the type of attacks, like I say, with, when we look at Microsoft who publish a report out there, they do almost 2000 attacks a day. And, uh, one of our customers, um, LeaseWeb, they gave us some information and, you know, they were basically putting the DDoS solution in place and they found that after they put it in place they reduced their support tickets by 11 percent. so that basically helped with their customer satisfaction score which if you're a, a provider of um hosting services you want to make sure you give the best ho- hosting service so it's so it's both a customer satisfaction uh, issue for them to keep their customers happy but um also to me that looks like a competitive advantage over those who don't have it right the other trend I'll probably say out there is the, I mean, I've said it a couple of times, is the automation. Uh, organizations are looking for automation and reducing false positives. Some of the last gen systems we've seen out there um, didn't employ uh, some of the more uh, you know, useful technologies, which some are very basic, like using uh, white, uh, white and blacklists, especially blacklists where they're sourced by different categories. That can just block known bad IPs from globally shared intelligence just from the get-go. So you don't even have to you know, burden your processor or anything. For the more advanced attacks, using things like the artificial intelligence to look at the packets and look for anomalies, which aren't signatures. They're looking for anomalies which haven't been identified or categorized and be able to block those. You know, is something which we think is emerging and something organizations are looking at. And we we did some technology with this about two, three years ago. And, you know, we actually have things from our customers saying, hey, I blocked like a 200 million packets per second and, you know, uh, you know 15 gig attack in, um, you know, automatically with this. So it's something which wouldn't have been picked up by a signature or necessarily an IP list, but it basically helped them protect their network um, automatically. So again, it's automation, I think, is one of the big pieces there when it comes down to it. Fantastic. It's, and it's funny as now words can convey so many images. And when you were talking there about your customers and those stats you brought to life of the impact there, you could literally almost see the t-shirt about how many, it was really interesting with the message. I could just see the messaging of everybody kind of like shouting, but that's amazing. That really is quite eye-watering. 
that that difference that's made that's fantastic and and on that on that kind of note really in terms of kind of eye-watering things as well I, I wanted to throw in this question funnily enough naturally we've, we've mentioned two examples of this already but in terms of things that you wouldn't have expected in the cybersecurity space this year and maybe where we're heading you know what things are really surprising you that you just hadn't seen on the radar at all because again i think by reflecting on that we could kind of look forward one thing which had uh, sometimes these things go in cycles because different types of attacks for different motivations um you know sometimes it's um uh people who are trying to make a political point sometimes it's uh just people doing it for fun uh, sometimes it's disgruntled employees but um basically there's definitely been a bigger discussion on nation state attacks right you know, we have a heat map in our report and you can basically see there's one big blob on the heat map and everything else doesn't look very big because of the intensity of the attack. But um, what was interesting about that was, you know, obviously the rise of nation state attacks, obviously that so many requests were going to a single machine because it, yeah, it was happening to multiple machines, but just the information we got from one machine, the intensity of it. And then um, the fact that it was trying to use infrastructure in the US to attack uh, Ukraine, right? So that was what was interesting about that to me is it, it made me realize that, um, you know, as IT professionals, we've got to be, you know, make sure our machines aren't being used for nefarious reasons, not just, um, you know, not just regular attacks, but other types of attacks such as this as well. Absolutely. And I think it brings to the fore as well, just kind of bringing together some of the things we've looked at so far. I'd love to speak more about kind of how you actualize this and kind of what you might describe as an intelligent automation protection cycle. So what would you advise kind of getting that balance right, really, in terms of yeah. suppression and active threat intelligence? What would your kind of top two tips, say, be around that? Yeah, that's a great question because yeah, I talked about multi-vector attacks where they're trying multiple different ways to attack uh, organizations with this malware, which is effectively off the shelf and they can repurpose. But also from a defender point of view, it's got to be not multi-factor because that's two-factor for authentication, but yeah, multiple um, different ways of you know using the defenses. So you know, automating that, uh, not just with the AI component, but automating it with multiple different techniques is the way to go. So like I say, you know, doing a uh, blacklist from known bad sources, um, you know, is a good thing. We have some customers who have, um, I think it's like, you know, uh, millions and millions of uh, entries just from their own network, from their own intelligence. But you can also, if you're smaller, like a regional service provider, you can take the entries which we provide as part of our solution and just you know, pick the categories you want to block automatically uh, on the perimeter. That's the first line of defense. Then I think you also don't want to be draconian when you know you basically have packets coming in. You want it just to act naturally whenever it can. So um, being able to establish a baseline, which is unique for your network, to know your traffic patterns, which evolves over time and gets more intelligent over time, is key. So one thing we do with our intelligent automation is have that baseline, which adapts and uh, gets more intelligent over time. And then it can look for the spikes. When you see spikes in certain types of traffic, you can apply different levels of policy. But say you know the traffic goes you know from ten to twenty percent, you don't want to just black hole and just dump all that traffic because it's going to affect lots of good users. What you want to try and do is make sure that you can escalate the appropriate defense. Like you might try rate limiting at first, and then escalate to more uh, other techniques like challenges and other things, depending on. Yeah, the threshold which is exceeded. So having an intelligent escalating threshold is a very good thing with different techniques. 
um, because that way you can make sure that you're doing an appropriate level of response and not penalizing um, other people. The other thing is there's definitely an evolution in terms of being able to pinpoint the source. So not just applying rules to everyone, but applying it to specific connections. And that definitely helps with the accuracy as well out there as well. Uh, finally, you can use those other techniques, which I've already mentioned, like you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, just to look for anomalies beyond regular patterns or signatures, which are very well known, like a SIN flood. Um, you know, that's a very well known using SIN cookies to um, you know, basically make sure you're not overwhelmed from a connection point of view. But for these unknown things, that's where the artificial intelligence and machine learning come in. So basically, multiple levels and configured in a way which makes sense as the attack um, threshold increases absolutely and i've kind of got an image of you know maslow's hierarchy of needs i've kind of got an image of that at the moment so at the bottom there you've got the 2fa or the two-factor authentication and it's something like 98 percent, isn't it of attacks actually you get that cyber hygiene rate right sorry it negates a lot of those threats but then above that getting more and more granular i love those multi multi techniques you're describing there but also the fact that they're getting more contextual and more granular and filtering out and that more active real-time intelligence. So I love the way you kind of took us through where this is heading in terms of trajectory and, and how your technology is supporting that. That's brilliant. And of course, alongside that as well, it's not just about the technology. It's, it's very holistic. We have to look at cybersecurity you know, protection from many different ways, don't we? So it's that culture, how you embed you know, shared responsibility, it's skills uplift and the, the skills confidence to apply our learning around this too. And something that's mentioned a lot, um, is zero trust security. And it's something that I'm really interested in. I've got a lot of research around this as well. And one of the things I think is so important here is awareness that you know, it's not something that's once and done. You can't just go and buy you know, zero trust off a shelf as a one, one-stop solution. It's all those different elements coming together, isn't it? So I wonder from your perspective, how you're supporting that from that holistic perspective uh, of zero trust along that combination of tech, you know, process, people, skills. Yeah, and I, I think uh, one of the points you made just in that, question there was you know talk about the communication right because communication in security is probably one of the harder things because how can you get people to buy into something which hasn't happened sometimes so uh, zero trust to me uh i mean it's obviously not a product um you're basically trying to just improve this the overall security but a lot of people gravitate towards it as a messaging construct for security so I think it's very good for communications because if you go up and say, hey, you know, we should, you know, block any SIN flood attack, someone's going to be like, what? Whereas if you say like, hey, you know, we can improve our zero trust posture, you're probably going to get more of a conversation and people will get, oh, I, I understand or are more engaged. So I, I think with zero trust, it's very good as a communications tool out there. And again, a lot of the things come down to, you know, what, what's the biggest priority for the organization? And when you look at zero trust, you know, the, the, you know, you're meant to look at, you know, eliminate the risks, um, you know, by having too much privilege, for example, looking at authentication systems, looking at, um, you know, access to those systems, just even just from an open network point of view as well. So a lot of the communication has gone around VPN, around zero trust has gone with VPNs, with multi-factor authentication, but really you need to look at every flow coming in. So I do believe DDoS is a part of an overall DDoS strategy as well, um, because that way you can eliminate certain flows, even going to machines. Like if you block it with the uh, with a blacklist, which is very effective, you know some of these botnets who might be trying to exploit certain vectors are never going to be able to get to the end machines, or malware might not be able to uh, launch, etc. 
So, um, you know, I think with Zero Trust, it's definitely good as a communication tool. And it's something which can be applied to uh, all areas of security, not just necessarily the hot ones, which it's uh, talked about in places. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. It's a great analogy as well about the communication tool part of that. And so going on to my kind of diversity and cybersecurity angle, again, this is a huge passion area of myself. It's something I do a lot of work with in my non-for-profit. Um, I'd love to hear your take on kind of how to really broaden diversity. In its, and again, in its broader sense, so everything, you know, neurodiversity, again, a huge um, interest area of mine. What do you think we can do to reduce some of the gaps that we've seen? And I think COVID has affected this too. We've seen bigger churn affecting certain demographics within the industry. And as we've seen through this episode, what a dynamic space to be this sector is. So I think let's get more people curious and interested in getting involved in this sector. So from an A10 perspective or a personal one, kind of what would your key advice be there? Because again, I'd love to share that with the audience. And it's a great way to increase that focus and visibility we've been talking about today too. Yeah, so um, again, that's a wide question, isn't it? So I think, you know, with IT and security, I mean, that it is a area which anyone can get involved in through ed- ed- education, like educating themselves on things as well. I don't think it's restricted to any you know, particular demographic because uh, there's so much more information which is available now, which wasn't available before, right? If you go on to, uh, you know, like YouTube, it's very easy to assimilate information and learn about, um, you know, different types of things, whether you're going to cybersecurity or, you know, the starting point, like I mentioned earlier, for a lot of people, including myself, is, um, you know, in IT. So just doing basic IT work can definitely help, you know, any person uh, develop into one of the, you know, areas which they might find more interesting later on, um, such as the security and the other areas out there. Perfect. Thank you, Paul. That's fantastic. I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tomorrow's Tech Today. If you enjoy what we're doing, please subscribe to us and leave a review. It really means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and see more behind the scenes video footage on YouTube. Thanks for listening.